the caste is really this thing that is these social hierarchies valuing some human lives over others who's at the top of this ladder or this hierarchy who's at the bottom and and racism is just a tool it's just a mechanism for putting people where they belong in the social ladder Hey everyone, welcome to the third episode of Act and Perspective podcast. Today we're sitting with Dr. Malika Pritchett, who wrote a very powerful article for the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice in August 2020, entitled Social Justice is the Spirit and Aim of an Implied Science of Human Behavior, Moving from Colonial to Participatory Research Practices. Now, in the article, she calls for a needed paradigm shift in ABA to commit to social justice which includes racial justice for all and recommends specific changes that disrupt the current power imbalances created primarily from white institutional colonial practices and that move toward more collaborative and participatory practices. She reminds us that our ethical responsibility as behavior analysts is to actively address the more complex social and cultural problems we face to eliminate racism, sexism, ableism, nationalism, and the like, in our continuing struggle to ignite meaningful systemic change. Please help welcome Dr. Malika Pritchett. How have you been doing? Oh, gosh. Well, I can't even remember the last time you and I spoke, genuinely. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we attended a training together uh, that grew. I can't remember the group name, but anyway, we we're going over a research article. Uh, yeah, together about um, about it was about race. It was about racism. Race and racism. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So that wasn't too long ago. I can't remember when that was. <laughs> Time yeah, is very was, strange. <laughs> well, six months ago, I think. Okay, cool. Um, so, so yeah, everything's been good. Um, one of the one of the biggest things was that you know finishing my PhD was all I had been thinking about for the last like three four years, yeah. and so and so now like coming up it's almost well this semester it will be a year since I finished yeah and um, I'm just like learning how to be a normal person again whatever normal is like yeah. you're constantly thinking about studying and school and, and what the next thing is that you have to write that's a, that's a very disorienting um uh -huh. and then it's just done and then so yeah. you're kind of like okay so what do i do with my time now yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, all, it is all consuming isn't it? Mm -hmm. it you feel like the pressure is off or, you, or now you have new pressures that you just you have to keep on going you have to keep on publishing you have to keep on advancing <laughs> That's a good question. Um, there's always the pressure to continue publishing, um, especially because my work is so timely. Um, so there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a, a um, what is the word like a pressure to um, to get more stuff out so that yeah. the, because the field is just grappling and they're just all kind of. Um, swimming in waters where there's just not much research, not much conversation. And uh, that's difficult for behavior analysts. We're used to just, you know, 
going yeah. to the literature and figuring out what we need and yeah. and uh, being excited about our, our our journey and then you know picking up the next problem after that and yeah. um, there's just not a lot of conversations about what our country is really going through right now from a scientific perspective and so yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. that's the pressure right now is like I do have a lot more to say, but I'm so ridiculously yeah. exhausted. <laughs> if I write a little bit every day, then I'm doing well. Oh, oh well, I mean, it, it was just, uh, have you seen this article? It's by Malika Pritchett. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I know Malika. Yeah. And she goes, oh, do you? So it was a very small world. And she goes, you got to read this. I said, oh, please send it to me. Well, like when I read it and it had just come out, I said, oh my God, this is so timely and, and really uh, very powerful language. I loved it. Thank and so you. then it just like it occurred to me, it's like, oh, just be very natural and very timely to have you on. So yeah. I'm really glad that you accepted. Yeah. Because so, yeah. um, I mean, we have a lot to talk about, and especially now since I can't really remember the last time we talked about what either early December or late November, mm -hmm. lots of change since then. Oh my gosh. You know, lots of changes. Like we're living in a whole new world. I know. And partly, I mean, it's surprising as hell, but are we really that surprised? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, we all <laughs> saw the tree coming down the road and we never stopped or swerved mm -hmm. out of the way, you know? Mm -hmm. so yeah. It's, uh, it's not surprising that we had an accident, mm -mm. but um, at all. Yeah, but it's still a shock, isn't it? It's just still yeah. a very, it's just a big, big shock. And it leaves a lot of room for us, for, for the science to discuss. Sure. But that's why I think that your article is just as fantastic. Well, I appreciate it. I've always yeah. been, um, I've always been interested in human rights issues mm -hmm. when it comes to science mm -hmm. and in bioethics and, and those types of things, especially yeah. in behavior analysis. Yeah. Um, and and that's why I went to get my PhD. I had I had this intention. It, it was uh, I started the program, I think, if I'm not mistaken, around 2016, 2017 is when I when I you know made the commitment to go ahead and go get my PhD um, and it had been a long-term goal it wasn't anything new it was just finally the time was right and my kids were old enough and and on and on and uh, I went into my program intending to to do this research I had no idea that the world in which we live in would come crumbling down as I'm wrapping up my my dissertation so I'm curious to know if the environment and the in the situation um, that was going on in our world weren't so horrific, I wonder if the tone of the of the manuscript would have changed. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. It's really, yeah. I, I I hope not. I know. I hope not too. No. But then, of course, there's no way to know. But no. just just it's sometimes. Uh, when you when you write about things about human rights and about social justice and about what we're really doing <clears throat> what we're really doing as scientists and how we're being called to action uh, based on what's going on in society we tend to use words that are very um, palatable for people because you don't want to cause um, people to be so alarmed and shocked and and so much 
so many uh, words being put in a manuscript that shock people sometimes that there's a danger in that yeah um, yeah but when things get yeah. so bad sometimes you're just using those words you just have to you know yeah well i mean the and i mean the flexibility of the language is what creates enough shock right maybe to have a person read on um it really it really inspired me and a little bit about you you became a behavior analyst in 2010 uh, so for 11 years now, and you've worked in multiple areas, including um, parent of abused, neglected children, um, aging adults in nursing facilities, adults with intellectual disabilities, moderate to severe challenging behaviors for both children and adults, children and adults with autism spectrum disorder, and all, you've also worked with undergraduate students who are academically at risk. Right. Um, and I didn't know this about you. You are also fluent in American Sign Language. Yes. Yeah. How'd you come to that? Um, that was a happy accident. I um, had a friend of mine that I worked with. We were lifeguards together and she she was offered American Sign Language courses in her high school curriculum, which I wasn't offered as a high school student. Um, so she had taken, that was her foreign language in high school, which was really cool. And I told her that I was interested in learning some sign language and she taught me over the summer, uh, and then told me that I was, I was learning so quickly and I was able to retain so much of the information that I should go ahead and consider taking, um, a couple language or a couple American sign language classes at the community college that I was at at the time. And I didn't have anything to lose. And I had, um, a genuine interest in it. So took the first class and um, had the had the luxury, I think, of having all of my professors were deaf and all of them used American Sign Language as their primary language. Mm -hmm. So I um, jumped into a situation where I was I was learning in an immersion type of type of method and I just loved it so much that I continued. I continued so much, uh, took all the classes that I needed, became certified as an interpreter in the state of Texas. And that's how I paid for my undergraduate uh, classes. It was really wow. cool. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, usually when I think of a person who is fluent in American Sign Language, they have a deaf relative or or someone who's deaf in their family that they have to communicate. Right. Um, but um, yeah, that's excellent. Um, so not only that, so uh, so you, you've worked as a certified interpreter for both children and adults, and then personally, on a personal note, you are also a mom to four boys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. How old are your children now? So we've got 18, 14, and then the twins are the youngest. They just turned 11. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I have a uh, soon-to-be 15-year-old by the end of the month, Wow. my 15-year-old daughter, and an 11-year-old boy. Oh, there you go. So you know the age groups. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do, man. I know the challenges of the teens. Yes. It's um, in this day and age. Yes. So welcome. Uh, and it, just tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came into this field, uh, applied behavior analysis. Sure. Um, uh, that's another accident now that I think about it. <laughs> I have these lovely happy accidents that have landed me in this position and I really love it. And um, essentially what I did once I finished up my uh, interpreter certification, then the next logical thing was to continue my undergraduate studies and um, 
basically when you know American Sign Language, you can either uh, go on the route of becoming an interpreter, or you can look into deaf education as a career, or similar types of, uh, types of careers come out of that. So I went to Texas Women's University after finishing um, some of my sign language classes and enrolled in their communication sciences and disorders program. Mm. And that program uh, got you ready to either major in speech language pathology and become a, a speech language pathologist, or you could become, or you could take the deaf education track and become a certified uh, teacher. And so that's what I did in undergrad. But then once I got into the classroom and I started to uh, spent some time in the classroom and I saw all the challenging behaviors that came out of these young children sometimes not being able to communicate because they hadn't been given um, any access to a com an effective communication method in their homes and then they were coming to school and that's where they were learning sign language for the first time. That's when I realized that I did not have the skills to go into a classroom and deal with challenging behaviors. I was not prepared. I didn't take any classes in that. And I, I foresaw the master's program really not focusing on challenging behaviors in particular. So, um, so I ran into a good friend of mine at a barbecue and was telling him all of this. And he said, well, I'm in a master's program in behavior analysis. And a couple of my colleagues really do some good work in that area. Have you heard of behavior analysis? And I had a strong biology background from undergrad. Um, and I said, I've never even heard of behavior analysis. What is it? And uh, Texas Women's University is in Denton, right down the street from the University of North Texas. So he said, well, just come on over. And uh, uh, see what see what we do and meet a couple of the faculty and just come over to the department. And so I came over to the department. I, you know, did it at the department, the Masters of uh, Science program at the University of North Texas. Wow. And, uh, you know, had no idea that I was, I was, you know, waving and saying hi to really famous people in the field, Sigrid Glenn, Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Shala Alai, who ended up being my master's and doctorate. Uh, 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 advisor and uh, who's, also co who's also I'm sorry who's also co-author on this paper so exactly. Is that, yeah okay. exactly so this paper is a portion of my dissertation that we went ahead and, and got published um, thanks to all of the the editors that were thinking on their feet and to behavior analysis and practice for realizing we need to create an emergency series to address what's going on in our country. So that worked out really nicely. So those co-authors, um, that's my dissertation committee. So oh, okay. it, all, it all rolled out really nicely. Yeah, okay, yeah, that did really roll out. And and, um, and it's such a relevant topic and I'm glad that you chose it. So what inspired you to choose this? So I've always been interested in human rights and bioethics and what that how that's reflected in applied behavior analysis in particular that's always been an ongoing interest of mine um what what compounds that interest is that uh there's this idea that science is is always especially the science of human behavior is always objective and always um uh always in, in, the, in the true keeping of science, seeking these truths and, and we're going to figure these things out. But then we end up having to have conversations when we're interacting with other humans about really complex ethics and, and philosophical based mm -hmm. uh, topics and considerations because we are in a very powerful but a very uh, 
responsible situation as behavior analysts when we're engaging with other humans. And yeah. that power is not something I've ever taken lightly. That power is something that um, in a lot of ways, the ability to change another person's behavior is something that, that can be really shocking. And uh, I find that a lot when I, when I tell people I'm a behavior analyst, I'll tell a quick story, which, which won't be a tangent, I promise. But if I do go on a tangent, just reel me back in. But I, I, was, I was flying to go see my grandmother. My grandmother lives in England. And I'm going through customs and going tra traveling out of your country is always a little nerve wracking to me. And entering new countries is always a little nerve wracking to me. Um, England is, is not, not nearly that complicated of a situation. But they ask you these questions. Why are you here? What's your business? What are you doing? And you fill out a little card and it, it asks you what your occupation is. So naturally I write behavior analyst and you know sign my name and hand over the card to this, this uh, I guess I would call him like a security officer at the airport. And he's looking and he's looking and he's looking and he's reading really intensely and it's starting to make me nervous because I'm not sure exactly what, what's on his card or what looks fishy to him perhaps. Uh, and then he just looks at me in a very British way and says, you're a behavior analyst. And I said, yeah. And he says, so how am I doing right now? <laughs> and and that, that was a lighthearted type of type of engagement, but that's what the general public is, is yeah. worried about. And yeah. so I, 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 I take on that worry and that's a, that's a good worry. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Where people assume that you're analyzing their behavior. Right. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, well, great. You know, um, I got to say, you know, the reason why I became a behavior analyst? Why? It's because of you. I'm like, because no way. Of you. Yes, of, yes, of course. I never heard of it before. Yeah. I was introduced to you when you were working uh, with uh, intellectually disabled adults. And um, yeah. I had never heard of behavior analysis before. And then you had inspired me to look into it. So career change. I came from a background in philosophy and, and, and uh, a bit of science. And I had, it was just all very new to me, but now it's just, it's a field that's just blowing up. Yeah. You know, really, really that's blowing so up. cool. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I think that made my year. That made my 2021. Yeah. Uh -huh. huh. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now you, you wrote this article that uh, I said, you know, it was, it is very timely and really relevant. And the reason I loved it was because it's very powerful, very powerful language. Um, you know, I wanted to read a quote here. Um, here you say, you know, the root cause of the lack of diversity in the field is related to a drift away from the applied spirit of the science and is fueled by the larger and more complex structure, structures of power that perpetuate racism, capitalism, and paradigm, paradigmatic premises as stipulated by white heterosexual males of the global north. Uh, and then these include examinations of hegemony such as Western science, the coloniality of power and the commodification of the goods of science. Can you elaborate a bit on that? That's um, a lot of words, huh? I know, I know, but it makes sense. But, um, but um, 
kind of lay out the general um, gist of the article, if you would. Sure, yeah, no problem. So the, the general gist of the article is, um, we have about three or four major themes in this commentary. And, yeah. the, and, and, and what it is in particular is okay. it's an investigation on how applied behavior analysis is how, how applied we are, what, what applied really means. So what we're really doing is we're purposefully take turning a critical eye and a shift and a critical lens to look back at our research practices. And it asks lots of questions and I think hopes to answer some of the questions, but the biggest question is, I, and, and the biggest overarching theme in my opinion is that it really asked us, do we really know ourselves as a field? Mm -hmm. Do we genuinely, we're, we are scientists engaging in research and, uh, or clinical practice, but, and we call ourselves applied behavior analysis analysts, and we say this thing is applied behavior analysis. But when I teach my students, especially, I'm often asking them at the beginning of the semester, what does applied really mean? What does it mean? And you get this knee jerk reaction and the knee jerk reaction is the good old socially significant. Uh -huh. And then you, you press the students to unpack what social significance means to whom and under what conditions and, and, and what does that actually mean? Uh -huh. And then that, that's when you start to get a lot of pauses and I'm not really certain and and let's figure this out and and i i don't know how often there's been enough commentary about the fact that what are we really doing and and we're operating as scientists but we're still operating under all of the contingencies that are in place with regard to how our society functions. And we can't separate those two things. We can't say, well, I'm just a science doing science things here in a vacuum and you're not impacted and your research agenda is not impacted by, by what's going on in society. And if we're really, really doing applied work, then our work should be to relieve human suffering. Yeah. And our work should, should be to, to improve quality of life. That's another buzzword that you're going to hear but the, but the biggest overarching theme is are we doing a good job and what have we what have we done over the last 50 years or so and and how are we doing <laughs> you know mm -hmm. self-evaluation i guess is yeah the ways to talk about it i think the biggest thing that i i we say call to action in the manuscript in a very purposeful way not in a way that is a call to action in the sense of which there is some danger in applied behavior analysis. This is just a cool research idea and topic for now. And once we go on to the next coolest research idea and topic, then our attention will shift away. That's not what I'm asking other behavior analysts to consider. What I'm asking, what we are asking other behavior analysts to consider is that we shift the trajectory of our research and we shift in a direction that really answers the call for for people in our country that are not doing well and and then of course extending that internationally anybody working in a community should be responsive to what the contingencies are number one that that set the occasion for this suffering and understanding the the 
systemic reason why the suffering is happening and then uh, working alongside people to solve these problems to increase their quality of life and, and relieve that suffering. And that's based on, it, if you do some really nice research or you get the opportunity to take a history of behavior analysis program and they talk about the history of applied behavior analysis in particular, in 1968, um, Don Bayer, Mont Wolf and Todd Risley, you can just imagine the scene in 1968, they're sitting in their offices at the University of Kansas and they're looking out the window to some significant events happening in our, in our country at that time. And they are um, in their writings and in their commentaries, especially, if I'm not mistaken, it is Todd Risley made a point where he said that um, uh, John F. Kennedy said that he should, that there was a call to action from John F. Kennedy saying that um, there were a lot of lots of work to be done. And he said, as a behavior analyst himself, he felt that that there was a call to action and that the work he was doing as a scientist would directly be something that would uh, be, a, um, be a response to, to that call to action from John F. Kennedy, especially with regard to civil rights and, and things like that. So those really early publications in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis are really nice. Those studies that they came up with in 1968 and um, probably all the way until the um, probably all the way up until the 80s are really my favorite chunk of applied behavior analytic research. That research was super cool. They were interested in problems that were happening at the local and community levels. Um, they were working with Black children. They were uh, interested in working with children that were underserved, living in poverty, things like that. So. I don't know if that answered your question completely, but yeah, that always stuck out to me. Yeah, it did. And it seems like maybe somewhere along the line, then we began to focus um, on the individual. Is that right? So we shifted to the individual. How many of your students then are having a tough time taking um, the information that they're learning and generalizing it to um, the community level? I think they have a difficult time because they're not taught to think that way. Yeah. They're taught to think topography. What is this challenging behavior I need to reduce? Right. What is this skill that I want to teach this child with autism? What is uh, this new procedure? You know, what's this new assessment? How do I, you know, and so everything becomes very topographical and very ritualistic as far as providing services are concerned, right. uh, especially clinical, clinical services specifically. What students have to be taught to do is to think broadly about the fact that each individual is part of some sort of system, be it a, a family system and then a, a community that they live in. And even schools function as entire systems of themselves. Mm -hmm. So students have to be taught and provide lots provided lots of different examples and lots of different considerations to consider context mm -hmm. and to consider the context of the environment. They're, they hyper-focus on the behavior and the topography of that behavior and changing that behavior. And they don't do enough exercises of zooming out and looking at the entire context of, of what's going on in that person's life that you're there to, to serve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's highly contextualized. 
do you feel like your students then know enough history um, and that they have a broader education in order to take that into account where um, you can have um, intelligent conversations around that? Um, level? It's, it's difficult. It's difficult. For whatever reason, the way in which our society just talks about behavior and tries to teach people about why they do the things that they do, the dynamics of the environment always get taken out of that conversation. It's very strange to me. Right. Um, and so this behavior environment relation, to leave half of that relation off and hyper-focus on just the behavior is, it, it, leaves, it leaves people a little disoriented. It's hard for them to talk about. Um, why people do the things they do under various contexts. That's hard. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you attribute that to a, um, a lack of perspective taking? That's a good point. I don't, I don't think it's a lack of perspective taking. I think it's a lack of understanding how, how to talk about behavior in, in ways that are more related to the environment and less related to the individual. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think that's how our society teaches you to talk about behavior. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. so when these students are coming out of whatever this thing is, that's the real world and they're coming in and they're starting to um, learn behavior analysis and understand the concepts and principles about behavior they're having to shift the way that they, a lot of them, some of them have different experiences as well, but it is a very drastic shift in how you conceptualize why people do what they do. It's difficult. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's the reason why people then are reinforced to talk only about the individual, leave out the environment? That Absolutely. Easier, simpler way of, of focusing? And it's a way, yes. And on top of that, it's a way for society to continue to blame people yeah. for their actions and to, especially this is especially part of the criminal system, which you and I have worked um, adjacent to the criminal system as behavior analysts working with uh, adults with intellectual disabilities. And it's always, it's always a, a way to blame the organism for their behavior instead of to put the responsibility back on the community and on the environment in which these behaviors were learned. Right, 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 yeah. You know, I remember having this, the lengthy conversations. I don't know, do you ever listen to Glenn Lowry, Dr. Glenn Lowry? He's at a Brown University, um, professor of economics, but he's also a social scientist. He is very vocal about putting the ownership of the responsibility on failures of black culture. I always saw that as kind of a, a problematic whenever, whenever having a discussion about race or culture, right? And the disparities that we see, no one really knows how to talk about why things are the way they are. Right. And it comes down to choice that well, you know, people make the choices and then and they're blamed for it. I don't see that a lot, but I also am very, very cognizant of that type of rhetoric and that type of, of way in which we're blaming 
the persons in society that are oppressed for their oppression and acting as if there um, just needs to be a, a commitment to just changing your behavior and then the oppression will go away. That's hysterical. Don't you think that Black people would have done that by now? Are you kidding me? If all it took was for our community just to accept that um, there is oppression happening, just got a few things that I need to change in my behavior, and then and then I'll be on the other side of this thing. That's right. that's hilarious. Right. right. Um, that that does nothing but cause more harm to the black community because then other people are listening to what you're saying, and assuming that that's a truism, especially if you have. Um, lots of different letters behind your name and you are what society deems you as perhaps uh, an authority or an expert in this area. Mm -hmm. That's too bad. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it also is a direct deflect and a direct um, distraction away from actually understanding that the systems that keep oppression in place mm -hmm. are so um, ridiculously I, ingrained is not a word I'm liking, but that's what I've got right now. But but ingrained and and programmed into everything that happens in society, and so so I find that laughable, and I find it unfortunate if people are um, trying to learn more about racism and trying to learn more about about oppression and relieving oppression that somebody is engaging in such dangerous rhetoric that's completely not true. Um, so that's that's unfortunate, but I will look into his work. Thank you for yeah. Um, it well, it just reminds me of the conversation we used to uh, we used to have when I worked for the state mm -hmm. uh, many years ago, and we took uh, a class with called on doing racism with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, mm -hmm. and it was all to create this really powerful and honest dialogue, right? Right. Um, but what happened was, what I found is that uh, people spoke of what they thought was politically correct uh, when they were together, and then when they separated, mm -hmm. people spoke their own truth. And so, um, so it really wasn't an honest dialogue. And that's what I fear is what's happening in America is behind closed doors, they're still saying, um, blame the victim, right? Sure. Or are you still using that language, blame the victim? Sure. And how to, how to turn that, um, what kind of conversations uh, could we have to keep that honest? Mm. It's, it's difficult because verbal behavior is just like any other behavior. And if, it's re if, if saying hateful things are reinforced in your community or in your household, and, and that's something that continues, that is just yet another opportunity for us to look at it from a behavior analytics standpoint, figure out what's maintaining these, yeah. um, these verbal exchanges and what's continuing this hateful speech and, and you know, taking it from there. One of the things I was thinking as you were talking is like, I just really love the idea of people going home for the holidays. This is just my, my vision, this, this daydream I have. Uh, people, non-people of color going home for the holidays. Actually, no, the hateful conversations come up all the time. Um, so I won't say non-people of color, I won't exclude white people, but 
what I will say is that I have this, this vision that everybody will go home for the holidays. And when uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so or grandma or grandpa says something that's hateful at the dinner table where you're supposed to be rallying together and having a nice meal and enjoying the company of your family. And then this hateful rhetoric comes up. I have this, this dream that one day someone at the table will say, Hey, that's that. I'm not going to let you say that anymore. Or I'm not going to stand for that anymore because I'm a black woman. So I walk around with this skin. So people are editing around me all the time. I have no idea if they're going home and sitting at the dinner table and saying these horrific things. Um, now, now don't get me wrong. I, I have a very good, uh, and it, it keeps getting better. The older I get, I can sniff it out if you will. And I can know when people are probably not, uh, not going to be in a Black Lives Matter march anytime soon. You know what I'm saying? So especially yeah. living in Texas, I've, I've, I've definitely learned along the way. But I think those small changes are really something that I dream of because um, it is a situation where, yes, they'll go into those trainings, especially the, the nauseating thing that I'm seeing now, which is the diversity inclusion and whatever else the next buzzword is. And all these companies having these trainings where they put people in a room and then they, I'm not sure what happens in those rooms with those trainings. Um, and then they expect racism to magically disappear after that. I find that laughable, but yeah. I do like to dream of those small significant changes where you just finally put your foot down. You say, I don't care if I'm not invited home for the holidays anymore. I'm not gonna let this happen anymore at the dinner table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it you know, I mean, there's there's just only so many classes that we can take, people can take and get in their masters, right? And one of the classes uh, is about diversity, training, uh, understanding culture. What do you think is lacking or uh, do you think that is is sufficient? No, it's not sufficient. There's, there's too much work for us to do. Yeah with regard to training our behavior analysts better. The programs are, are doing, a, are, are not doing a great job, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, and those, those programs are, I know a lot of university programs are starting to rethink the courses that they're offering and seeing if they can expand. And a lot of people have been doing this work, but there's still a lot of behavior analysts being trained right now who are getting none of this information. Yeah. Do you think it's a lot of it's uh, about experiential training? I think, I think experiential training, but I also think that there's not enough contact with um, these types of topics and how they influence the work that we do with other humans. I don't think the coursework even and the readings and the articles that, that we're expected to digest cover this information well enough. Yeah, yeah. And that's scary, right? To think that yeah. behavior analysts are being trained in this climate right now and they're not ready for right, right, right. And then they're going out and then they're going out in the field and they're practicing, and then they have all these assumptions that they're working under that they're not even aware of, right? Right. Or they're largely being ignored because um, it's not on a task list and it's not right. part of a yeah. a requirement for your schooling. So it just gets ignored. Yeah. Yeah. And then people are ill-prepared. Yeah, yeah. We got this done, we, we hit that checkbox, but nothing's really changed. Um, and I'm wondering, well, like, what needs 
what would be a valuable class to have in, instead of just the regular diversity training? That's a good question. I yep. hadn't thought about that. I have, I have been perseverating on the problem for so long that I hadn't thought about what, and I think what you're intuitively asking is what are the skills that behavior analysts need to learn yeah. so that they can, they can practice and be more prepared when it comes to whatever um, comes their way as far as diversity and inclusion and, and all of those, those words are concerned. That's a good question. I, I don't know if I have that answer. I don't think it's one class. <laughs> That's probably what's giving me the most pause is I think that there are more, um, more than one class would need to go, go into this. Or what you have is you have professors that are able to be nimble in whatever class they're teaching and be nimble enough to provide multiple exemplars for multiple families, multiple contexts, multiple backgrounds. And so they're nimble enough to infuse that into every single class. So at the University of North Texas, I was taking classes in parent training. I was taking classes in legal, ethical, uh, what is it, legal, ethical, and professional issues. I was taking classes in, um, and how to, how to create intervention programs. But woven throughout all of those courses, I was lucky enough to work with professors that were constantly talking about, okay, different family, okay, different context. We can't get ourselves in a hole and think that if it works for the white family, you know, down the street that I can take it across the country and, and lands in a predominantly uh, Latinx community and it's gonna work there too. That, that yeah. it, just, it makes no sense. So that was constantly woven, but if professors aren't prepared and well-trained, mm -hmm. then, then, then that kind of trickles down to what the students are able to, to gain from, from their experience and their knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And did you feel like when you went into behavior analysis, you had that um, that depth and, and that broad knowledge that other students didn't necessarily have? Um, I the program at the University of North Texas is it's intense, and I was very well prepared coming out of that program. I had a lot of skills and I was very, very well trained. And so this thing that is stumbling across behavior analysis, not only did I stumble across behavior analysis at a barbecue because I didn't know what to do with my life that day <laughs> and I was having one of those life crises, but I stumbled into one of the best programs and stumbled into some of the best professors, leading professors in the field, leading researchers in the field. So I was very fortunate. It was an, it was an entire accident. Yeah. Um, uh, UNT was the only program I even applied to. I didn't apply to any other graduate programs, and uh, and I got in. And I don't I don't know about I don't know why <laughs> why that happened because I had no background in psychology or behavior analysis. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So so I was very fortunate and and am very fortunate. But there's other people that I've come across from different programs or different ways in which they fell into the field and they were not. So I think I just came out lucky in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, you, you bring up some good points in the article about broadening those skills, right? Um, and have, being able to sit down with another person, you had, you mentioned about 
perspective taking. Um, you talked about um, uh, shared listening um, or uh, cultivating the courage to speak to people outside your typical comfort circle. Yeah. So when you think about what's going on now in America, right? And we have people who will who um, have a extremely different view. I mean, they're seeing the color of the sky pink and you're seeing it blue. Right. How in the world then would you be able to sit down with a person and have a rational and intelligent conversation with hopes of changing when they're not able to participate? I, I don't, I don't know. I've never walked around me personally. I've never walked around in a world with white skin on. I don't know what that looks like or feels like. So I have, I can, I can engage in perspective taking of how um, I see some of my friends walk through the world. I, I can, I can see that and I can see that lens um, or I can attempt to see through that lens, but after it'll get to a certain point where I will never really fully understand that experience. So I've always been in this skin and this skin is always, uh, always the skin that's being asked questions, that's being uh, crit not criticized necessarily, but questioned. Why, why does your hair look like that? Why does your skin tone like that? Um, which one of your parents is black, which one isn't, you know, there's always those conversations. And so I'm just used to talking about these things because I walked in this skin all my life and it's con I'm being constantly reminded of what I look like and how I walk through the world. So I'm constantly engaged in conversations because, um, because I can't avoid it. That's just the way, the way things are. So, so I guess the question is how do we, how do we get someone to sit down with someone who's so who's completely different than them and engage in 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 genuine learning um i can't imagine you know what i'm saying but one of the one of the key indicators to me is um well, well i'll answer this question and then I'll, I'll 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 speak on that there are very low stakes opportunities to interact when what, what i mean by low stakes is like the social interaction, if it, if it goes sour, or if I say something and I stick my foot in my mouth and I say something I don't mean, or, or I, you know, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm trying to engage with other people, there's lots of low stakes opportunities. You, low stakes opportunities, in my opinion, is like, I'm never gonna see you again. We probably won't, you know, cross paths again. And uh, I got this from my mom and she would talk to strangers. She would sit at the airport, you know, and where are you going? You know, she's just genuinely a curious person. And she didn't like the idea of talking to the same looking person all the time. That was very boring for her to just talk to somebody who looked the same all the time. Um, so she would talk to all kinds of people. And then if there was a communication breakdown, she was, she was going to adjust and she was going to find different words and simpler terms and maybe some gestures. She was just genuinely curious about people. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like people are genuinely curious about people who are different than them. I, I don't feel like they do those low stakes opportunities. Like you're not gonna probably see this person at, at the airport ever again. 
that's a little takes opportunity. You go to a new city, you, you try out a new, uh, a new cuisine that you've never tried, you know, those are low stakes opportunities to, to step into the culture of another person for a little bit of time mm -hmm. and find out like, uh, where are you from? What language do you speak? Like how, you know, and when people are genuinely trying to learn and try to make those connections, you'd be surprised how much your life gets fortified by just learning about different people. Yeah. And yeah. so if it becomes a reinforcer and it continues, then, then you get to expand. The second thought I was going to have is just like the conversation at the, at the dinner table during the holidays, if all of your friends look the same, that's a good indicator that you're probably not engaging in some conversations with people from diverse backgrounds so much so that you're not even able to make friendships and meaningful relationships with people who don't look like you. Yeah. That's a good indicator that you might need to expand point. who point. you're talking yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you had mentioned about, you know, you're always questioned, you're used to the questioning about people asking, uh with regard to your skin color your hair things of that nature is that tiresome or are you welcome yeah. no it's exhausting yeah 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 black people are, are for the most part right now especially in this country we're, we're on a whole nother level of exhaustion yeah yeah our existence is being assaulted every day and we're seeing it on tv over and over and over again yeah um, and in social media, anything with a screen, we're constantly being reminded. It's it's oppressively exhausting. Yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. too many people who just shut their mouths and say, "Well, it's not. You know, I don't have anything to say." Right. No, I think I think being a white male in this country, in particular, doesn't exempt you from from anything really what it does is it says that from a social standpoint you're in a in a position of uh, more privilege and you're in a position that if if you're just paralyzed by your analysis this analysis paralysis type of thing and you're thinking about it all the time and and then what am i going to how am i going to do this and then you don't end up doing anything that's not how we ignite any sort of systemic change we don't need a bunch of people thinking about how to solve the problem that is racism in this country and, and white supremacy that we don't need people think do you know how many people have written about how to solve this problem <laughs> like we need we need action. We need to dismantle these structures. We need more people to do more things along this trajectory that are actually going to be um, helpful. And one of the one of the best books that I've read read about the condition of our country is a commentary, or not a commentary necessarily. Um, it's a wonderful book called *Cast* by Isabel Wilkerson. Okay. And this book really lays out the foundation and I, I think every person should read this book because it lays out the foundation for what these social hierarchies are in um, has conversations about the black community here in the United States, the Jewish experience, um, and then also the experience of caste in the Indian community. Mm -hmm. So she beautifully weaves this conversation together and it, it it's a wonderful book because it shows you how ingrained white supremacy is across the world yeah. and how, and caste is a very good word for this, how hard 
and how structured these systems of oppression are. So once you are aware of that, then you're having different conversations, I think. I also don't like the idea of people being allies to the black community. The black community is very strong and very um, nimble and very resourceful and resilient. We don't need people to be our friends. We need accomplices. And, and, and Bettina Love, Dr. Bettina Love talks about, we don't need allies, we need accomplices. We don't yeah. need anti-racism, we need abolition. So these are different ways of thinking about things. And then white fragility has been talked about a lot and white people are not fragile, they are yeah. not. Yeah. Um, racism is powerful, racism kills people. And so Dr. Love's comment about this thing that is white fragility is just, we don't accept it. I don't accept it. Yeah. Um, do you feel like that uh, you know the white progressive speech is actually more dangerous than, say, the explicit racist, right? Who's railing against um, all other cultures except the white culture, the white nationalist? Mm-hmm. That the white progressive who speaks out, but they're really it's it's a cover for their own bias. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? That is a really good question. Dr. Ruha Benjamin talks a lot about racism being very crafty, very shifty, um, and how it penetrates places and things in ways that we don't recognize. And so one of the examples, I'm reading her book, Race After Technology right now, and what she's talking about is she's talking about the algorithms and the programming in systems like AI systems and robots and um, um, even the algorithms that that govern our social media usage, Mm -hmm. how those can inherently have biases and anti-Blackness woven into them. So one of the examples that she uses is the infrared technology that sensors um, or senses when you put your hand under a sink so that it automatically turns on, that infrared technology, as it was getting rolled out, wasn't recognizing very dark skin because of the way in which the light has to reflect off the skin, bounce back to the skin to say to the sensor, turn the water on. And that's just a small example of the way in which racism or discrimination or discriminatory discriminatory designs are embedded in just the way in which people think they they they're just living and so the 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 actual hateful rhetoric and the use of racial slurs and what people think racism is Mm -hmm. is only one portion of racism racism is actually very very good at shape-shifting and finding itself in different places right right yeah yeah and i've noticed that it's, uh, it's very difficult to be aware of privilege and, uh, you know, what a lot of people say is, like, oh, I'm not racist, you know, I don't say racist things. They, they set themselves apart from the white nationalist, right? And so the white nationalist is racist, I'm not racist. And one of the things that uh, undoing racism taught was, look, racism equals um, power and privilege, and they're talking about institutional power. And insofar as I participate in and benefit from a white 
institutional, institutionally powered society, uh, then I've got to own that. Um, and doesn't mean that I'm explicitly explicitly racist, um, but I found that a lot of people had a very difficult time accepting that and owning that uh, privilege. Tell me a little bit more about, or can you elaborate to me more yeah. about people having difficulty accepting that, because that white privilege was a thing? That's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so the people I, I spoke to, it hurts when to, to internalize it and say, I have ownership in a sense that I participate in and benefit from, right? And to, to take ownership of that. And so it's much easier to identify the racist as a person who is explicitly racist, mm -hmm. rather than taking ownership of the fact that Hey, when when I graduated, or when I um, didn't get arrested, or didn't get stopped by the police, or didn't even have to worry about what the officer was going to do when he approached my car, that's my privilege, right? And right. to own that, I don't think that I don't hear that a lot. I I don't know why that's so difficult to, to wrangle with. Again, I've only been in this skin, you know, I'm raising four black boys in this, in this society. And so I don't get the luxury of thinking about racism sometimes and then just putting it to the side at other times and, and going on as mm -hmm. the business as usual, whatever the status quo is. I don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. um, my husband's a black man and he's very tall and he's very large. He played uh, football at the University of Washington. It was a linebacker. So he walks around in his body all the time. And if you don't, and he, and he goes on now that we're stuck in the house all the time, he's trying to keep his exercise regimen intact. In and he likes to go out and go for walks and jogs, but he really likes to wear lots of clothing because it warms up his body, gets his muscles going a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. And I, as a wife, watch my husband go on his walks and go get exercise and he wears a hoodie and he's, you know, he's got a lot of clothing on and he's a big guy once again. And I have to fear for my husband's life when he goes to get some exercise, you know, and he's got his AirPods in so he can't hear because he's listening to whatever podcast or, or whatever it is he's interested in for that morning. And so I don't have that luxury. It's just... You know, if you're, if you're going to, if you're uncomfortable or you're hurt by the fact that white privilege is a thing and it's really difficult for you, then just imagine how that feels and multiply at times whatever multiplier into the millions. That's how black people are affected every single day. So this moment of you being uncomfortable is nothing compared to being part of a group that's being routine, continually routinely oppressed. Right. And having a president of the United States who continues this hateful rhetoric right. and hearing that every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's appalling. So, it, it, which leads me to my next question, too. I mean, and we had talked a little bit about this before, having that conversation with people on the other side um, that are pretty explicit. I and mean, they're not, you know, I've had these conversations with Trump supporters. So what I hear is 
look, uh, for the longest time, white people are the new black, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That they're oppressed, that they're forgotten, that we can't even have these kind of kind of conversations, that uh, that the black person or the Hispanic person got my job um, because of their the color of their skin. What privilege do I have? How in the world then do we kind of crack that um, shell mm -hmm. and have that dialogue with each other where we can actually have empathy and understanding and perspective taking um, to even begin if we can't have uh, if we can't even be honest with each other. Sure. Well, and people that are clinging to white supremacy and clinging to, to that, that notion and that rhetoric, they're clinging for a very good reason. There's a lot at stake, right? Their, their privilege is at stake. So they're going to fight like hell to keep it. I mean, these folks are not storming into Capitol buildings and planning to hurt people because uh, of, a, of a cause other than the sense that if white supremacy were to get dismantled mm -hmm. and if people were treated equally in this country, they have something to lose. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just basic ways in which we understand the science of human behavior. They're engaging in a lot of responding and they're, they're responding is through the roof because they're trying to, to guard a loss of reinforcers. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to do whatever it takes, it seems, which is terrifying. Right, right, yeah. You know, and what occurs to me too, there's never really been a white culture in this country outside of power and privilege, right? And so if you take that away, then you're taking away the person's livelihood. And so it seems to me um, that it's, uh, it's not surprising that they would storm the Capitol and do something so... Um, objectionable and so risky because their their whole lives are at stake their whole meaning is at stake um sure. that they feel america is changing too rapidly mm -hmm. and they're losing uh their status yeah and right uh and that was a whole point of trump's dialogue was capture that audience and say, no, no, we're gonna bring America back. Meaning we're gonna make America a white institutionally power driven society again. Yeah. Um, but not as explicit, you know? Right. Um, yeah, but uh, a lot of this has to do with race and we have to have these kind of conversations. And, and you know, my fear is like, we have these conversations online and people are appalled but yet they're superficial. And so we don't really get to the depth of what do you honestly think about human behavior and why, why do you think that black culture uh, or that, that black people have this disparity mm. um, or Hispanic people have disparity? There's, there's more to it than, than the superficial answers that they give when they're talking with each other or on social media. Sure, and, and also one of the biggest things, that's why I, I referred to Isabel Wilkerson's book. And what I really like about her book is that she says that the, the cast is really this thing that is these social hierarchies, valuing some human lives over others. Who's at the top of this ladder or this hierarchy? Who's at the bottom? Mm -hmm. And 
And racism is just a tool. It's just a mechanism for putting people where they belong in the social ladder. It's right. just one tool also. And another tool is, is gender and sexuality. There's this tendency that um, the cisgender heterosexual norm and anything that's uh, different than that is considered a deviation or defunct or not not okay. Mm -hmm. It's it's infused in ableism. It's infused in understanding or 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 what this thing is that's beauty and a standard of and what a body is supposed to look like. Right. And so that's why that's why I say that this this complex complex issue that is white supremacy mm. is everywhere. It's everywhere and it's in everything that we that we experience. So it it becomes very tricky. It becomes mm. extremely tricky. And then heaven forbid you have you have these different, you're different on, on multiple fronts. You know what I mean? Heaven forbid you're a person of color. And then also that uh, you're queer. And then also that you're a family of immigrants. And then also that uh, English is your second language. And also, and you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's work on intersectionality speaks to this beautifully. So, so then where are you in society? So this valuing of certain human lives over others right. is, is unfortunate. We've seen that, we've seen this in the pandemic. The pandemic has turned a really nasty leaf over and exposed a lot of yeah. horrific ways in which some people in society, uh, are are expendable oh. and and um not not important enough to to care about um, yeah 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 it's really difficult and i can see from the other person you know it's really difficult when you're when you're trying to survive on your own and um and so all you can see is the benefit that that you can receive right as right. opposed to thinking about other people and what other people how other people are suffering out there. But there is quite a bit of suffering out there that is, um, is created, has been made more explicit by the pandemic that's always been out there, but it's been more in, and um, the disparities out there are just getting worse. They're not getting better, they're getting worse. Right. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're getting worse and I think the thing that keeps me up at night is I felt like we did a pendulum sh swing from mm -hmm. um, Barack Obama's administration to Trump's administration. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been feeling like I'm on some sort of horrible carnival ride that's like flinging me from one end of the, of the earth to the other. And, yeah. and, and so meaningful progress isn't happening because people are so so on one end of something and so on other end and we're not making progress so things are worsening yeah. and and you're gonna love this perspective because a lot of people don't get it because our 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 youngest kids are 11. Uh -huh. do you realize that they i was having this conversation with with the twins at the bus stop about a year ago or no 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 it was, it was when barack obama was leaving office and we knew trump was coming in so that was a while ago and I didn't realize that these 11 year old children had no perspective of anybody but a black man being the president of their country. Mm. They had not seen any other person leading our country. Mm -hmm. 
And so how to explain to children that this new person coming in um, looked very different and said very different things was very shocking to a child. And so I think you, everyone should hang out with children and just see life from their perspective <laughs> because I didn't think about that. I didn't think that they had always just known this person to be in charge of our country and that this was such a dramatic shift for them. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just, it really is. I mean, it's a very dramatic shift for, for everybody, but but especially for children who's never experienced anything outside of that norm, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how do you feel about the, the administration? Um, you feel like typically the government moves into like I'm a kind of uh, a very moderate stage where really the contingencies are nothing substantial changes mm -hmm. or do you think now that we have at least the room to breathe where external forces can come in and exercise more radical change i don't know time will tell you know yeah. it's still politics right i mean don't yeah. get me wrong i'm not a person who thinks that this a, a new administration that looks more diverse is going to do right. all these miracle things you know there's still politics there's still politicians at the end of it they're running yeah. a very specific campaign their goal is to get elected and so time will tell but it's really unfortunate and it's also it's also not fair to put all this power and emphasis on politics and on these people that are that are elected officials because we have a lot of work to be doing at the community level ourselves at the everyday level so we can't put all of our our excitement in an administration because there's still so much work to be done that could be done at the local grocery store you know yeah, yeah. Yeah, just in how we interact with people and, and having more dialogue like this yeah. that may feel uncomfortable just just to talk about race in an honest in an honest way. But um, um, but it, it really does need to be done. Use this to progress forward and change policy and change practices, you know. Absolutely. And another thing that white people have to be aware of in that effort is they have to be aware of the fact that your friend from a different uh, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, um, uh, range of abilities, whatever we're going to, whatever this friend is different in, um, and especially as Black people, people white people saying, okay, I'm going to figure out this thing that is racism and I'm, I'm committed and I'm, you know, white supremacy, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to do better. Um, that's, that's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But then also your black friend is not the person who's in charge of teaching you about racism and white supremacy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This labor is not to be pushed back on the black community. Right. Uh, right. This labor is, is not to be, uh, pushed back on the queer community. That's not their labor. Yeah. It's not, yeah. It, you know, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's not that person. I, I just genuinely want white people to realize it is not the other person, the oppressed party's job to teach you and educate you about the oppression that you've had a hand in, you know? Yeah. 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 Or be the spokesperson for, to <laughs> represent the entire race. Right. Exactly. 
coming from that perspective, then if, if you're, you know, if a person who feels very uncomfortable to have those kind of conversations has then the courage to engage in those in, in a conversation, mistakes are going to be made. Social mistakes are going to be made right. that require a bit of compassion, understanding. Exactly. Um, you know, and it's um, so. And, and honesty and, you know, all these, all of these engagements would be much easier for people to have if they were taught virtues, virtues of honesty, virtues of humility, virtues of um, being genuinely interested in another human being and empathy and perspective taking, you know, like the stuff they're not going to teach you in a public school, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and these go back to, these go back to religious teachings mm -hmm. and philosophy in a lot of ways with regard to ethics and, and how to treat a person and how to engage a person. And so maybe some of the skill acquisition programming you need to do for yourself if you're struggling is that maybe I need to, maybe I don't seem genuine. People can, can tell when a person is disingenuine and they're using another person's culture as a way to be a voyeur or a way to look and be be perverse about what they're interested in seeing mm -hmm. instead of a person who's genuinely interested in learning and experiencing those are two different ways in which you walk into a space that's different than yours mm -hmm. right right and right. and if you're not genuine people know it immediately yeah they know it immediately um but if you if you tell a person I'm learning or I'm trying to figure this out, or I just wanted to do something new, I wanted to try a new food. Can you teach me about it? That's a different posture that you're, that's a posture of learning. That's a posture of being humble and coming into a space instead yeah. of a posture of, I'm going to figure out what this thing is that is, you know, and I'm going to master it. That's why I don't like the word cultural competency. Like you'll never yeah. be competent in another person's culture. Yeah, yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah. I, I really like the, the, um, the idea of, it's, it's called 12, you can Google 12 habits for highly empathetic people. Uh -huh. And it's really nice because what it is, is it operationally defines um, empathy in a way that I like as a behavior analyst. And it, it, it doesn't end up just kind of uh, in a strange mentalistic world where I can't really figure out what, what this thing is that we mean. And um, it has all of these different habits and it breaks down operational definitions of these habits. And what these habits are intended to do is that they're intended to, to do just that. The function is to talk to new people, engage in, mm -hmm. in new learning opportunities that are diverse, that are different. And, um, and, and one of the habits that, that they talk about is just genuinely talking to some, that's what you saw in the manuscript, the citations in there too, is like, talking to someone that you that's different than you, um, engaging in those low stakes opportunities. And so I think that if you start to engage in these habits that uh, fall under the category of becoming more empathetic, you may find yourself learning new behaviors and these behaviors um, and these responses being cuspal responses that open the opportunity and the doors for many, many other reinforcers. And once engaging with people that are different than you becomes a reinforcer, then you're on a whole new trajectory in your life. Yeah, 
Yeah. And really, like, what do you have to lose to talk to somebody who's different than you? You don't have anything to lose. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, good. Okay. Um, anything else that we have we haven't covered? You want to talk about? The, no, I think I think the only thing that I would caution new thinking about new students again yeah. and thinking about myself and my history of learning. I grew up in Texas, um, part of the Texas educational system, born and raised in, in Texas. And I was always taught this colorblind notion that it doesn't matter if we're different. We're all this. We're all the same. You know, I don't see color. And I would just really like for that to go away when students yeah. are, are thinking about these topics. Right. Um, there is a difference. And um, Dr. Laley McRyan talks about culture as being um, a, a repository of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at culture that way and you look at different people that way as this wonderful repository of wisdom, mm -hmm. then, then um, that, that is so much more beautiful and directly against this idea that we're all the same, we're all this happy human family because it's yeah. not. The reason why why we're so wonderful as a human family is because we are different. Right, right. So that's, yeah, all. Yeah. that's the last thing that really spoke to me as you were talking. Yeah, good point, good point. Thank you so much for being uh, I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, uh, I, I hope that this topic uh, progresses the conversation further. It was yeah. nice to see you again. It's nice to see you too and have a good rest of your weekend. And, you um, too. Yeah, anytime. I'd be happy yeah. to come back anytime, okay? Great, all right, stay safe. You too. All right. Bye.